Blackbird episode number 61. My name is James, and today I'm pleased to bring to you my conversation with Tyler Foley. Tyler is an actor, an author, a safety consultant, a speaker, and a speaking coach. I wanted to talk to Tyler about giving a dynamic and impactful presentation, and particularly how to tell a good story, because that's somewhere I know that I've struggled in the past. Also, of course, we get into personal issues, and we get into his professional career, particularly as a safety consultant and also his acting career. Before we get to the interview with Tyler, of course, let me remind you about Football Insider Edge. If you love playing fantasy football, or if you're like me and completely hopeless at it, I think I found the perfect resource to help you with your research. Football Insider Edge. Whether you're a season-long player, whether you're focused on DraftKings and FanDuel contests, or if you just like to make the occasional wager, Football Insider Edge will help you with research tools and in-depth analysis to take your game to the next level. We're still here in the first couple of weeks of football season, and so it's not too late to start building your team or just making week-by-week bets. As someone who doesn't follow football, but someone who does kind of like to make a quick buck, I certainly know that Football Insider Edge is my go-to place for all of my football gambling needs. They take the guesswork out of football gambling. With their proprietary model, matchup charts, and award-winning content, the team over at Football Insider Edge have devoted themselves to educating their subscribers, helping them improve their play, and, in a few special moments, win life-changing money. The guys at Football Insider Edge are proud of the community that they've built through their interactions on Slack, and they take great pride in helping others achieve the goal of becoming better fantasy players. For listeners of this show, they're offering a 20% discount on any monthly or full-season plan. Head over to footballinsideredge.com and use the code BLACKBIRD at checkout to get signed up today. Once again, that's footballinsideredge.com and use offer code BLACKBIRD at checkout to sign up today. And with that, here is my interview with Tyler Foley. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Take two. Yeah, take two, but it's fun to be here, James. And now you know all my stories and we'll just get them out for your audience. I know. We'll just do it as if scripted. So for the audience, I forgot to hit record. So we're we're just doing this all over again. Thankfully, we're only about 10 minutes in. Tyler, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the folks? Absolutely. So uh, Tyler Foley, uh, known as Sean Tyler Foley, and we will probably at some point get into uh, why my name is confusing for the world. Um, But I'm I'm a father, a husband, best-selling author, performer. I'm an amateur musician, play the drums, and a seeker of warm beaches. And you and I have had a great discussion about beaches in Canada. Yeah, which actually exist. Uh, apparently, so Prince Edward Island with the red sand is the is the place yeah. to go if you're ever in Canada and just looking for a beach. And like in the United States, the Pacific Northwest, BC, is probably not the best place to go, right? Well, I mean, it's, it's A, it's cold. And B, it's that sandy, gravelly stuff. And you being in Minnesota right now, we had a fun discussion about people saying that they're going to the beach and they really mean the lake. And that's the majority of Canada, particularly you being in Minnesota, uh, right north of you in Manitoba. Everybody goes to the beach. And what they really mean is that they're, you know, going to the lake. Yeah, that was a huge culture shock for me when I moved here from Texas, where, you know, if you're going to the beach, obviously you're going down to the Gulf of Mexico or maybe, you know, you're flying to L.A. or you know, somewhere you're not going to the lake for sure. So we started talking about stories. So your kind of focus when you're coaching people on speaking is storytelling. Is that about right? Yeah, well, storytelling is one of the components that I use to help people get over the fear of public speaking. Okay. Because nobody knows your story better than you. And it helps people get off script. One of the worst things you can do as a public speaker is have a scripted conversation, as you and I both know, right? Like we did the one introduction, it didn't work. So we've done another introduction and it was similar to how we started, but it wasn't exactly the same. And it's because I know my material, you know your material, and we can cover it over and over again. It's because it's the experience of our life and that helps people get over it. So I, as part of overcoming the fear of public speaking, I encourage people to open up and share their stories. Mm-hmm. What do you think makes a good story? Details. Okay. 
People think that stories need to be these Hollywood epics. And a lot of times they think that they need to be these great tragedies, Shakespearean in their delivery. And the reality is it's not, it's not the story arc. It's not the plot that makes the story interesting. It's the tiny details that give the story context that matter. And, you know, for a really good example of this, look at any Tarantino film. Right. A lot of times the stories are very, very simplistic, mm-hmm. but he focuses heavily on minutia and subsequently everything holds meaning and subtext and context. And through that uh, is an engaging and compelling narrative because you're captivated by the little things. And so the more detail you can provide in a story, the more universal it will speak to an audience. That's a really good point. Some of the most iconic movie scenes in history are, you know, Honey Bunny and whatever the other one's name was, telling each other they love each other in a diner, and Julius Winfield and John Travolta's character, whose name I also can't remember, Vincent Vega, talking about fast food hamburgers. Yeah, right. It's And then and it's nothing. They're nothing. Yeah. In fact, they're almost so to the point to nothing that they become filler and yet that's what rounds out the characters and makes them so compelling like mm-hmm. and, and you, you talk about the the royale with cheese speech in that you learn so much about those two characters in what would otherwise be really nonsensical dialogue mm-hmm. but because it's so specific and detailed you understand their stance on <laughs> on drug use you know how traveled or untraveled they are. You know their their sophistication levels. You know their their levels of morality come through in that, all because they get into very fine detail. My partner is a very good storyteller, and he kind of makes fun of me because I'm not the best storyteller. He t- he he makes fun of me like my stories are yeah one time a thing happened and that that's the end. Whereas for him, you know, they go into detail, and I noticed that his entire family does that. His grandparents had their 50th anniversary here recently, and they had a big PA system, and everybody was asked to go up and give a speech, starting with the grandfather, who rattled on for at least 45 minutes, and maybe even longer, just giving the blow-by-blow of his relationship with his wife of 50 years. And it was it was hilarious, and it was touching, and the funniest part of it, of course, was because at their 40th anniversary, he didn't get up and talk. And so he hasn't heard the end of it since then. And so like that immediately got us all rolling. And then the, the rest of the story was just so funny because it was so long and rambling and detailed. So when I got up, you know, as sort of like the an outsider who was sort of adopted by the family three years ago, I contrasted that with my family who doesn't really tell stories. I mean, we've got stories, I guess, but like we don't we don't tell them. We we just say, you know, do you remember that time when blah 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 happened and then yeah, that was really funny and that's it. We don't recount the story itself. We just recount the fact that we remember this same event. So as an adult who is not the best maybe at learning a new skill, how would you coach me to be better at remembering to include details that make something entertaining and not just one time a thing happened. So, and again, be careful with trying to be entertaining Uh Um, because a lot of times that's when we, we still need to be ourselves. Right. And uh, the industry buzzword right now is authentic, which by the way, is a word that I hate. I, it drives me insane. Every time I hear about how somebody is an authentic speaker uh, I just, I want, it's honestly hot pokers to my eyes mm. and my ears. But what I would encourage people to understand is that authenticity is synonymous with self-awareness. So you have to know who you are at your core. What are your core values? What are your driving motivating factors? What are those things that make you, you? And if you are more fact-based than performance-based, you know, more less theatrical, um, maybe you're not, maybe entertaining is not the style that you need to go with, but you can still be engaging. And that's the difference. You want to make sure that your presentation is always engaging, but it doesn't necessarily have to be entertaining. It could be informative. It could be emotional. It could be educational, which I recognize is close to informative, but there is a difference. Sure. You know, what do you want 
what is the end result? What are you trying to give to your audience when you're telling a story? So one of the first things to be aware of is what is the end goal with your presentation? What does the audience need to walk away from? And, and we really need to put our focus on how do we, what do we do for our audience? How do we make it best for them? And the first and usually starts with being aware of who we are so that we're not deviating from what is our, our core nature. Because an audience has an initial um, BS meter, right? We all know upfront if somebody is being honest with us or not. And if you try to put on a front and try to do a thing that, that isn't actually you, you're alienating your audience on a subconscious level. And that's one of the worst things to do because they don't trust you or they don't like you or they don't, they're not engaged with you and they're not sure why. And it takes the brain a while to reconcile that. And so it's distracting from your message. So the first thing is, is just know who you are. And then the next thing is to make sure that every time you're telling a story, there's a point to it. And Les Brown says it really famously. He says, never tell a story without a point and never make a point without a story. So again, going back to how is this going to serve my audience to make it the, the best presentation so that they walk away better than how I found them. So what if you feel like your stories just don't have points? Or on the other hand, how do you find a story to go with a point you want to make? Well, very simple. So uh, this is something that I do in all of my workshops. And uh, you and I will get to play this game right now. Okay. So when I do my big uh, two and a half day uh, workshops or my full five day seminar, the first thing we do, uh, one of the first things is answer that question. How do I find my story? So I want us to go and do a little third grade math. Okay. Okay. Do you remember when you were first learning to divide numbers? Yes. And we divided them in groups, right? We divided to the whole. Uh-huh. And then we had the remainder. Do you remember remainders? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So... First thing to do is take your age, however old you are, okay. and divide it by five. Oh, shit. And okay. then you're going, yeah. you may or may not have a remainder, right? Depending on if you're a five and a zero or if you're not. So if you're five and a zero, no remainder. If you're not, you will have a remainder. And we're going to take the remainder and tack it on to the first time period. So for me, I'm 42. Divide by five gives me time periods of eight, eight evens, right? Eight holes. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I've got a two remainder and I'll back that on to the beginning. So my first uh, time period is going to be zero to 10 and then 11 to 18, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The next thing to do once you've done that is ask yourself, what is the most significant memory? What is the thing that stands out? If I think back to my time, for me, zero to 10, for you, whatever that age is, what stands out? What is the most significant memory I have in that time? So what is yours? Okay, help me help me with the math. So I'm 38, which means I've got five sevens. So you're sevens and a three remainder. So your first time period is the same as my first time period. It's 10. 10, okay. So zero in, in your, you know, those elementary years of school, probably, you know, birth to the fourth grade, give or take, what, what is the most significant memory that you have at that time period? Oh my goodness. Probably. Well, okay. So it's generalized. It's Thanksgiving at my great grandmother's house. Okay. So in a series of them. Yeah. Like every year. Okay. Why does that stand out for you? Why is that such a significant memory? Because it's the last time that I had like a significant relationship with like my whole extended family, like the great grandmother. So, you know, second and third cousins and all that stuff. Right. Now, I, I'm not going to ask us to dive too far into it because yeah. when we do this exercise uh, in the um, in our seminars, this is about a two-hour uh, deep dive in, into discovery of okay. ourselves. And again, right, authenticity is synonymous with self-awareness. So we have to do some real uncoverings of some truths. But I can already see just from your story that there are some significant points that can be explored from it. Mm-hmm. So right now I can already see, you know, an exploration of family dynamics. 
on exploration of how those things can crumble, why family is important and why support when it goes, when you don't have the support, how that can affect you, when you do have the support, how it can affect you and the the lessons learned. So at that point, that's when you start, that's when you need the details, right? So like, Mm -hmm. I'm already, I'm already hooked. I want to know your story, James. Because I'm fascinated. I have, I, you know, cause I'm already putting together pieces in my head and they're based on, on serious assumptions. And that's a great place to be at because if you have an audience who is making assumptions, mm-hmm. you get to, uh, either validate or contradict the assumptions that they're okay. starting to make. And that is where you have unbelievable power. So. Doing those explorations and starting to get into the details, you know, who is your favorite cousin type thing? What did your grandmother always prepare? What, you know, it wasn't necessarily the food that you were looking forward to. It was the relationships. What was the one that you uh, had the best with? What was the one that you always wished that you could have had with more? See, all of those things start to flush out this story, right? And so now you have a story. But remember, a story can serve multiple points and can have multiple lessons. The key is now to know what your audience is. So the next step is doing an audience analysis. What does your audience need to hear or what what is the expectations of what you're trying to deliver so that you can then tailor the elements of the story that you're going to tell to support the point that needs to be made? So one of the things that kind of stood out there was to kind of lead the audience to make assumptions so that you can either confirm or deny them or like take them on a different, on a different path. Refute, sure. Yeah, give them a different point of view. So do those serve purposes or is it just the audience is going to be either surprised, like they'll have an emotional reaction either way? They're going to have an emotional reaction and, and yeah. you want them to have emotional reactions because that's when learning happens. Um, when we just hear facts and we have no emotional connection to them, they disappear. And I, I, I'm fascinated by a, a, a new statistic. I'm somebody who loves statistics. I love metrics. Okay. And I'm trying to track down the source of this study. So I don't have it right now, but I've heard this stat twice. So I'm going to track down where the study is. And that is if you tell information in a story, it has a 20 times impact on the ability for your audience to remember it. If you just give them a stat, they're 20 times less likely to remember it than if you support that statistic with the story that you tell. And part the, the, what I would like to do in my research is find out if they have, if that number is supported by the emotional connection that happens through the power of story. I suspect that to be true, but I, I haven't read this study. I've just heard the statistic. I know innately from 35 years of public speaking, I know it to be true. I just don't have a study to support it, that it's the emotional connection that resonates with people and that gets their heart and their mind aligned. And what a lot of people forget is that your heart has neurons. So although it doesn't hold um, memories in the same way that our brain would, where we can recall with our brain and, and picture things, your heart still retains memories. And what those memories are, are the feelings within your body. And when you can connect your heart and your mind, that is when our memories stick the most. I'm pretty sure that that's why one of your most significant memories is uh, Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. because you're going to have a mind-heart alignment in times like that, particularly when you, when you have emotional um, feelings behind it, whether that's joy or sad or sorrow or whatever, right? All of those things will trigger a heart-mind alignment, and that's when you get the the really um, powerful memories that stick. And so what you want to do is get your audience in a heart-mind alignment, and usually that comes through either validating information that they know to be true or allowing them on their own time to come to a new realization that drastically jars with a norm that they have held because it creates dissonance within the body and it's that feeling of uncomfortable that 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 starts growth 
right? When we get into that an area of discomfort, and usually that's when our core beliefs are challenged in a way that shows us that we could be wrong. It's one thing to just say, no, you're wrong, right? And this is why you're wrong and rattle off statistics. But it's another thing to lead people onto this path where they they end up <laughs> on the road that you wanted them to be on. You took them there. You programmed in the GPS. Mm-hmm. And they all of a sudden end up in a town that they had no idea they were going to be in. And suddenly the world has changed. Most of my audience is libertarians, and we are just notorious for you know trying to persuade people with facts and logic. And here, read this book; it'll 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 change your mind immediately. Just all you, all you have to do is read this book. So you mentioned earlier, there's a difference between informing and educating. Why don't you flesh that out a little bit, and also you know throw in some persuasion as well? Absolutely. So. First thing, I mean, for our libertarian audience, for those, you know, who like uh, some good quotes, stats tell, stories sell. And anytime you're trying to persuade somebody to a different point of view, you're just trying to sell them. You're selling them on something. You want them to buy your opinion, your information. Uh, You want them to process things in a different way. And the difference between information, uh, you know, an informational speech and an educational speech, information is one way. I am providing you with the numbers or the facts. And re- and, and here's the thing too. Facts aren't truth. Mm. And truth isn't facts. If facts are, are a set of statistics, truth is the, is what the meaning we put behind those numbers. Yeah. There can be a solid state of facts with multiple truths attached to it. And I know this because as a safety consultant, one of the joyous things that I get to do is educate people and instruct Mm -hmm. people. One of the worst parts of my job is when I have to do an an accident or incident investigation. Because at that point, somebody's life has changed drastically for the worst. And part of doing investigations is gathering witness statements. Now, what ha- the fact is an event has happened. The truth is everybody sees that event differently. And you know, the half a dozen to a dozen incident investigations I've done over the past 10 years, every one has one thing in common. And that is nobody can agree on what has happened. It doesn't mean they're lying. They are all, I'm, I'm sure, telling the truth, especially because when I'm in there, when I'm doing an investigation, when I'm doing my uh, interviews and, and um, deposing witnesses, it's usually I'm g- gathering these statements within an hour or two of an event happening. And they've usually been isolated from other witnesses. So I'm just getting what they're version of events are and it's they're telling they're usually telling the truth because they've seen something traumatic they're not trying to hide anything but no two stories are ever the same so they're telling me their point of view and my job is to come up with where those points of view overlap and in there is likely the closest thing to the reality that occurred i'm still going to have my viewpoint on it So my truth from what I'm distilling from the truths of other people's still will not actually be the facts. They are the information that I'm putting together to make a factual assumption about an event that has happened. What really happened, no one will ever know. Mm -hmm. And that's the important thing to remember when we are trying to convince somebody. You can throw the, all the information at them that they want, but if you haven't connected with them on an emotional level, they're never going to hear that. There's no reason to, because as a human species, who do we look out for first? Ourselves, always ourselves. And so if, if it doesn't serve me, I'm not going to pay attention. So you have to convince me how it serves me to understand your point of view. And that's, again, back to the power of story. Power of story allows me to walk a mile in your shoes. They always say, never judge a person until you've done it. Well, I can't 
physically come to Minnesota and walk in your shoes, James. It's just not going to work. And I'm betting we have different size loafers too, because I'm what, like an eight, seven, yeah, I'm a, somewhere I'm around a 13. there? I'm a 13. You'd yeah. be flopping around. So, yeah. And well, see, and that's the funny thing. At least I could get my feet into your shoes, yeah. right? You'd, you'd be one of the stepsisters with Cinderella trying to <laughs> shove your feet into mine. So you and I can't actually walk a mile in each other's shoes, but you tell me a story about Thanksgiving and why being that connected to that extended family matters to you. Now I get to see the world through your eyes. And instead of trying to sell me on a set of statistics, you can sell me on a feeling. And a feeling is easier for me to understand than a set of statistics and numbers. So when you're taking notes on your safety investigations, I worked in HR for a long time, and then I was in corporate training for a long time too. So I've done my fair share of safety interviews and also safety Yes, training. my condolences. Yeah, I know. The only thing worse than a safety interview is uh, my manager won't schedule me, uh, won't, won't give me time off because we're short-staffed reports, which <laughs> just like, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. Anyway, safety stuff. Do you incorporate this into your safety consulting, either either in trying to relate to the parties involved or when you're like taking notes on it? Do you, I remember when I was in HR, when I would take notes, basically it was just bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, just the facts, just the data, none of the, none of the feelings. Is that your approach as well? Or, or do you, uh, do you actually like recount the story in your notes? No, both. Yeah. So one of the things that I will do when I'm doing an incident investigation is I record it. I don't often record a video mm-hmm. um, because I find that as soon as you stick a camera in front of somebody's face, um, they change. Yeah. It's just, it's just human nature. But what I do like to do is record the audio and, and that way they can just tell the story and I can just listen, but I'm still getting the information that I need. Mm-hmm. And so now the notes that I'm taking are when I feel that they're, I'm now observing physical behaviors. Are they being guarded? Uh, what is their body posture during certain points? Um, what am I feeling as far as an emotion off of them while we're going through? And I just make notes of um, kind of where, where it is. Then I will later go back and review the tape based on the notes that I was taking so that I know um, where things were difficult for somebody to discuss. I mean, you can hear it on the tape usually, but not always. Uh, where it was difficult for somebody to discuss something, where I feel that there was guarded or there wasn't more information. And that will usually indicate when I do my second interview, further things that I need to to drill in on. And when I am doing any form of consulting and, I, and I, corporate training, I mean, I do a ton of corporate training. And one of the first things I do is acknowledge the feeling in the room. <clears throat> Who here is dreading the next two days with me because you're probably going to try to figure out a way to have a nap at some point in the next two days. <laughs> like, we all know it to be true. You laugh. Yeah. Oh, and as yeah. soon as I got that, you were like, yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. And they know what I'm talking about. And I'm acknowledging, look, I, you're human beings. I'm a human being. We're adults. Most of us are, haven't been in a classroom in years and years and years. Mm-hmm. This is a weird environment for us to be in. And you feel that there's some place better for you to be. So I want you to right now, write down all the places you'd rather be than here. And the beach is an acceptable answer. Mm. And then that gets people, you know, on my side, because now I understand. And we do a quick share. I'm like, where are all these other places? And as weird as it is, when everybody's like, well, I could be here, I could be here, I could be here. I go, okay, but we're here. So let's make a pack together right now. How we're going, because we can't be at the beach. We can't be fishing. We can't be on the boat can't be camping, we can't be quadding, we can't be puzzle building or playing with Lego or whatever it is that you said. So how do we make the most of our time here right now? And then everybody shares in. And now all of a sudden, I've gotten buy-in from everybody in the room. And it's a weird little technique, and it throws people off. But again, it puts them into a point of comfort and then discomfort. And that's where the growth happens is going from that change from being in a point of comfort to a point of discomfort and challenging their perceptions. And one of the first things I do is challenge the perceptions of what uh, uh, corporate training can be. doesn't have to be a PowerPoint and boring. I don't use PowerPoint in my corporate presentations. 
In fact, I have lost gigs because I refuse to provide a PowerPoint. And they're like, we're oh, sorry, really? if you can't load the PowerPoint onto our, into our SharePoint file, well, then blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I am not the trainer for you. Come back to me when all of your employees have been lobotomized and we'll try it again. Pat Flynn, who's a, he's sort of an entrepreneur guru online. When he gives speeches, like he'll, he'll do the PowerPoint, but he doesn't have bullet points. It's just images. Like he'll, he'll just have yeah. like a, an image that fills the entire screen just because people want him to have a PowerPoint. So he puts one together, but not, not anything that's going to detract from his actual talk. Yeah. So you have kind of an, a resume a mile long. You're, you're a writer, you're an actor, you're a presenter, you, you do these coaching seminars on public speaking, but you're also a safety consultant, which is a really weird mix. How did that happen? Oh, it's so securitous. Um, so I started performing at a very young age. I started at six years old. And, and right now your audience is at a disservice because I've, we've done the exercise with you and asked in your first 10 years, what are your, what was your significant memory? But we didn't do it with me. And so for your audience right now, if I was to do the exercise, what are the two things that stand out in my mind the most? My two most significant memories are both from when I was six years old. Mm. The first one is the sound that my mother made when the police officer and my family physician came to our door and told her that my father was never coming home. My mother made a sound that was... <sighs> The only way I can describe it is animalistic. It was this guttural, haunting, heart-wrenching, spine-tingling noise that reverberated, I swear, through the town, not just the house or the community. And it, it was a wailing that I never want to hear again. And then my next significant memory is still from six years old, and it's the sound of laughter and applause when I was on stage and the first time I ever made an audience laugh and clap at the same time. And those two memories are interlinked because I would have never been on stage if it weren't for my father's passing. When my father passed away, I was six and I didn't really have this ability to any six year old, I don't think has the emotional capacity to fully understand the finality of death. And so I didn't really outwardly openly grieve my father's passing for almost six years. And subsequently, um, my mom was looking for some form of outlet for me to be able to express myself and theater happened to come along. I was born a performer. I just didn't find the stage until I was six years old. And those two things have influenced every decision that I've made since then. I went to a fine arts high school. I had a medical incident at 17 that paralyzed the left side of my body for almost a year that reminded me of the uh, frailty of life and helped reinvigorate my drive to be in performance at 25 i got bored with um being i i became really complacent with my with being a professional actor and at that point i'd been in the industry for 20 years and so i retired and went to uh, get an engineering discipline i um geomatics degree from a local college here in town. And that started my trip on to being an entrepreneur. That business failed. The first business that I created, a, a mapping company, an aerial mapping firm, collapsed basically overnight for me. And I had, as part of my main contract, was working with the government, and the government requires that you have a safety system. So I had all of the safety training. And another friend of mine said, why don't you be a safety professional? You'd actually be really good at it. You have this right blend. And it was actually the encouragement of a friend who saw a gift in me that I wouldn't have understood myself. It was having an outside perspective of somebody saying, these are your skill sets and I know this thing that would actually be good for you. And so then I pursued that and, and was in safety for a while. Still am. I still have a safety consulting firm. But from that, what I found was where I was most effective was training people to emulate the things that made me a good safety professional. And that was this power of communication and teaching these public speaking skills that I had put together over decades of performance. 
And by being able to give people that information, that then became the book. And now, you know, number one best-selling author, safety trainer, public speaker, and all those things that are on my resume all came because of two noises that I heard when I was six years old. One that I never want to hear again, and one that I will live the rest of my life pursuing. That's awesome. As someone who also has lost a loved one before that person should have passed, uh, I can attest to the influence that that has over the rest of your life. I wouldn't be doing this podcast if my little brother hadn't died. So sorry for your loss. And also, you know, let us also celebrate the fact that this is sort of our loved one's legacies, what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. So what's the title of your book? We haven't even mentioned it yet. Ha! The Power to Speak Naked. How to Speak with Confidence, Communicate Effectively, and Win Your Audience. So are you, uh, are you speaking naked also because you're Im- imagining your audience naked? That is the worst advice ever given <laughs> to the planet and one of the reasons why the book that is called little, what it is. That was a little softball for you, by the way. I, I know how yeah, you feel about that you. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, oh man, do I, I, the, <laughs> the title came because of a rant that I went on for that exact reason. When I was first putting the book together, <laughs> It, because it's an advice book, right? It's a it's a nonfiction business book. So that's really all business books are, are advice on how to do things. Yeah. And so I, I was struggling with what the title should be and, and trying to come up with something clever and something that would engage an audience, which is, you know, two chapters within my book. And so I was asking my team, I'm like, you know, what's some of the, what's some of the advice that you've gotten around public speaking? Like, let's start there. And that came up, you know, the picture of your audience naked or in their underwear. And I went on this diatribe about how it is ineffective that, um, it's taking up unnecessary brain power and, and it's masochistic in its, in its design because you're trying to somehow gain comfort from other people's discomfort. And why would you try to do that instead of trying to put your audience at ease and then from that be at ease yourself? That should be the focus. And I would rather you have the ability to have the power to stand up naked in front of people instead of trying to picture the people naked. And as soon as I said it, the team went, that's an idea. And and the power to speak naked was born. Awesome. So... You earlier said something about uh, like analyzing your audience or something along those lines. Yes. And did you mean that in real time or did you mean that like in preparation or both? And how do you both. do that? Okay. So uh, on our website, I actually have a tool that's available to people who sign up for our mail list called the audience analysis tool. Oh, great. And that's a thing that I will send out to any promoter or anyone who's booking me, you know, for any kind of a corporate gig. I want to know who I'm speaking to up front so that I can get a general sense of what needs to be delivered and what the expectation of that event is. Because um, ultimately, I only get asked back if the promoter or the HR professional or the executive who brought me to that venue feels that their audience was served the way that they wanted them to be. And so I need to know what the expectation is. So what is the expectation of the venue? What is the expectation of the audience? What is the makeup of the audience? And that will inform my language. It will inform the amount of time that I use, how much Q&A I uh, involve. All of these things uh, come from knowing what the audience is up front. But that only serves you so far. You also have to develop a sixth sense for where you're at with your audience live in the room. and so. A lot of my decision-making is informed ahead of time as part of my preparation, but I am always prepared to pivot on the fly based on the feedback that I'm getting live in the room because live in the room is the reality and what I had on paper was preparation. And we we can't be married to our preparation. We have to be married to the live presentation. So what do you do in order to gauge the audience? I know that like for instance Jordan Peterson who's a he's a he's a pretty good, you know, presenter. He will choose a single person or maybe just a couple of people and imagine that he's only talking to those people. And that to him is like his finger to the wind of how the entire audience is taking in his his message. 
is that good advice? Would you would you make it more it's broad? It's not or? good advice, but it's it's not it's not bad advice, but it's not good advice. Okay. I talk about that actually in the book. I call them my anchor people. Okay. So I am going to find where my support is so that if I start to feel the room is going, I can go back to my anchors and recenter. Because they're always going to find some one or two, three friendly faces in the audience who just who resonate with you and you feel the support. But that can be dangerous because now you're only serving three people versus an entire the advice right. of speaking to your audience like you're just speaking to one person is really good advice. I always speak to an audience as though I'm talking to one person because that's who I need to talk to. I need to change one person. It's just each one of those people is collective in a larger audience. Yeah. But I'm only trying to change one. And that, again, when I was saying you, your story needs to be specific, it needs to be specific because you need to, you all are only trying to change one person. And if you can try to change one person, usually you're changing the entire audience. Focusing on a specific two or three individuals can um, help in anchoring your emotional context, but you can't get so fo so um, micro-focused that you forget the macro. You need to be able to feel your audience. You need to do broad sweeps and check in with multiple people. I don't try to win over the haters. In fact, I actively try to push them away. Mm -hmm. Because my messaging is not for them and it's a waste of energy and doesn't serve my audience, which is the people who resonate with my message. So if there is somebody who just is, I'm not going to win over, I'm not going to waste my time with it. I'm going to win them over through the majority, not through an individual uh, effort. And so I'm going to focus my time on the people that are being served. But at the same time, if it's more than one person who is not resonating, if, you know, a quarter of the audience or half of the audience, or if I'm starting to lose 60, 70, 80%, now I need to take the time to re-engage and get back on it. So if I'm only focused on three people, I may not be serving my entire audience. I need to do pulse checks throughout and make sure that everyone gets something out of it. Even the dude in the back who is like, this guy's a moron and I hate this. <laughs> he still needs to walk away served. Mm -hmm. If it's only one point, that's fine. I noticed earlier, and this may or may not have been deliberate on your part, but I had, like in my browser, I, I opened a tab to find my next question. And you stopped me in my tracks by asking a question that, and then pausing. You didn't, you didn't like answer the question immediately. You, you waited for me to re-engage with this conversation that we're having right now. And we're like, we're on Zoom, so you can see my face. I don't know if you noticed that I had kind of disengaged a little bit, but it was very effective. I haven't disengaged again. So, <laughs> so it, was that, was that deliberate? Yes. Yes, okay. it was. <laughs> uh, and thank you well, for noticing. And it's one of the things that's discussed in the book is the power of pause. Wait for a response from your audience. Don't feel the need to push through. Yeah. You use that very effectively, and that was that's kind of a lead up to another question that I wanted to ask. When I'm speaking by myself, or really, it's if I do like a solo episode of this show, which I've only I've only published one, and um, it's because I have a lot of verbal tics. I just did it. I, I said and um, I do that all the time. How do you get over stuff like that? First of all, I don't. Okay. Um, I just did an um. We are going to do it. It's a part of natural speech pattern. And one of the things that drives me crazy is the trainings and the organizations that try to get that out from us. Mm. If it becomes a problem, we need to be aware of it. So we need to know what our filler words are. Uh, we need to know how we are using language. So I have hundreds and thousands, tens of thousands of hours of video footage and audio recordings of the stuff that I do. It's because I want to be aware of how I'm using language and what my filler words are. So is one of my most overused <laughs> words. I use it to connect sentences. I can't even finish the sentence because I want to use so. <laughs> yeah. So much. It's one of the words that just is in my lexicon and will not go. 
but it's a natural speech pattern for me. So when I point it out, people start to hear it. But if you weren't aware of it, it's natural. It's just the way that it is. The same way if I need to take a moment to think about how I'm going to answer a next question or if I have a thought that needs to be formulated, it is natural for me, along with 7 billion other people on the planet, to go, hmm, or um, or some other form of vocal resonance deep within here. It's tribal. That is the noise of thought. Trying to get rid of that completely is actually counterintuitive to an effective speech pattern because it's how we communicate as humans. We understand what um means. The problem is, if this is how my speech went, um, well, that's a really um good question, James, uh, because um, the answer to that is, uh, now I'm using um as a stutter and it's a filler. Okay. That is what we need to avoid. But to try and completely and totally alleviate all of these words that are natural within our speech pattern is counterintuitive to giving a natural uh, talk or speech or delivery or presentation. We need those words for our audience to feel comfortable. When you completely and totally eliminate them, you sound like a robot. It's like watching an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation and hearing Data never use a contraction. It is jarring. You hear that it is robotic. It's one of the reasons why that was worked into that character. And subsequently, we need to use the language that is natural to us and trying to get rid of it. That's dangerous. So what about, there I go, so what about when it does become problematic, though, if you do use it as as filler and not just your natural speech patterns, but as a way of, you know, stalling for time or whatever it is. So ask yourself why you're stalling for time. First of all, is it because you're trying to formulate a thought? Mm. Is it because you are genuinely uncomfortable with the material that you're delivering? Are you uncomfortable on stage? The being aware of why we're using the words is more important than trying to get rid of the words that we're trying to do. Because when we become aware of them, we're naturally going to start remedying the thing that creates that, right? It's that symptom cure issue. If you're thirsty, a drink of water will cure it. If you're not, a drink of water will prevent it. And prevention is always better than a cure. I would rather know why I'm saying the word that is why I'm using those filler statements, sounds, words, so that I can alleviate the scenarios and the circumstances that lead up to that use so that they are naturally minimized within my speech pattern. Connecting sentences with so, filling the time with um, or and, or like. Now I know that what I really need to do is instead of filling the time with sound, I can effectively use a pause because it's going to get my audience to lean in. You've heard me do it now on the show live and you're acutely aware of it and I appreciate that you were able to recognize the deliberateness of it because if I hadn't done it that way, one of us would have wanted to fill it with some kind of sound that didn't serve Mm -hmm. the audience. The yeah. silence served. Well, and I appreciate you re- rescuing me by answering the question for me because I had no idea what you had asked. It was, <laughs> it was I, I almost crashed and burned in the middle of my own show. So that's another way of like re-engaging the audience though. I mean, if you have that kind of pregnant pause and then recognize that the pause is pregnant and so you go ahead and br- break the silence, but you're communicating subconsciously even that I don't want you I don't want you to disengage again. What are some other ways that you can re-engage your audience if, if you feel like you've lost them? Pattern interrupts. Um, yeah. Tony Robbins does these great. you know anytime, anybody who's been to a Tony Robbins events knows he will will and can swear yeah. <laughs> and he does. But what I don't think a lot of people realize is how deliberate he uses language. And uh, particularly in a professional scenario, swear words grab attention. Yeah. So there, you know, I'm not suggesting that everybody adopt the personality of a sailor or a trucker and start swearing in their next presentation, but understand that the language that we use, there are trigger words 
that will be within your audience based on their makeup. And again, why we need to know what our audience makeup is and why we need to do that audience analysis ahead of time because they're going to have trigger words. They're going to have things that make them sit up and pay attention. Pauses are another way. One of my favorite tricks that I will use, in fact, it's it's probably my most overused tool in my toolbox. Most people get used to it by the end. They're like, oh yeah, no, now we're going to do this thing again. But it, I do it because it works and nobody gets tired of it. And that is to have um, once, you know, every 15, 20, 25 minutes, I will ha- say, okay, turn to a partner and share what was the biggest takeaway from that last section. What did you get? <laughs> now, that does a couple of things. First of all, when I say that last section, you know that now that section is over and it makes you go, what section? <laughs> That was a section. That was a, that was a, a time period. So now you're having to actively recall. And now you're having to actively recall the information that was there. So what stood out to you? Then you share it with a partner who then hears what was important to you. And then they share what was important to them. And now you're reinforcing the message twice. Plus, you're getting people moving and engaging and thinking. All of those things re-energize the room, create a hard break force people to think about the material that you were doing, gives you a chance to review and make sure that you're on track of where you need to be, gives you a moment to reset and come back. And and so I use that tool way too much. But it's because it's <laughs> it's honestly one of the most effective tools that any speaker can do. You feel the audience waning at any point for any reason, just be like, turn to a friend and tell them what, you, what your biggest takeaway so far was or from that last section or whatever you want to use. That also is a great way to build rapport within the audience and not just between you and the audience. Exactly. And if you really want to put uh, go third level and deep with it, make sure that they're sharing with a different person each time. Mm-hmm. So share with somebody different. Yeah. Okay, now, now pick a different partner. Okay, now I want you to go over to the other side of the room and find somebody who you haven't talked with yet. Right. And that, that's forcing movement. It's forcing people to get to know each other. They're having conversations. Uh, and as you said, building rapport within the, within the audience. Switching gears just a little bit. So I don't, I don't struggle with st- stage fright. In fact, I, I would say that I'm almost like foolishly confident in my ability to take the stage. When I've stood up and given talks, at least in my adult life, They've been fairly successful, even if I was underprepared. But when I was in high school, I ran for student body president. And I don't remember exactly what I was talking about, but I gave basically a 30-second speech that was supposed to be about five minutes, all about how I was the outsider candidate, but I didn't fire up the audience at all because I was only talking about myself. Mm -hmm. The whole reason for that was because I was so nervous and I had such bad stage fright. Mm -hmm. How do you get over that? I, I don't know what I did to get over my, my stage fright. I, I just kind of outgrew it. But uh, for those who are interested in speaking, but may or are even not interested in speaking, but might get forced into it someday, what are some tips to be more confident on stage? Well, this is, again, a half-hour conversation that you and I probably don't have time for. Yeah, but I'll done, give so. a couple of, of tips. Uh, first of all, I'm fascinated by your story because again, I'm already starting to make some assumptions and I would love to explore through that another time offline. Yeah. So you, you might end up being a case study in, in a future um, <laughs> training session that I do. The thing about the fear of public speaking is that it's a lie. Okay. People are not afraid of public speaking. And I already know, James, that there are people that are listening to this right now And they're like, no, statistically, 77% of North Americans have anxiety over public speaking. And I am one of those three and four that, uh, that that is terrified of public speaking. And I go, no, you're not. If we were afraid of public speaking, society would collapse. And I'll give you one example of that. I want your audience right now to think of the last time they were at a restaurant. And if they were able to order food, they spoke in public. And if they didn't know their wait staff prior to ordering their food, they spoke to a stranger in public. Mm. Not only that, they asked for what they wanted and they got it. So this myth that I'm afraid to ask, I'm afraid to speak in public, I'm afraid to ask for what I want, I'm afraid to speak to strangers in front of strangers. All of that is BS if you've ever been to a restaurant. 
And like I said, society would collapse. You could never go to a bank. You could never uh, go to a restaurant. You could never, you couldn't go into a store. You know, you would never shop. Commerce would die if we were afraid of public speaking. What we're actually afraid of is public judgment. Being the center of attention within a room and having everybody weighing their opinion of you based on the opinions that you're expressing. That is the true fear. And it's the fear of public judgment that I can tackle. I can't do anything to tackle the fear of public speaking. Because if you are genuinely afraid of public speaking, that is a phobia that needs to be addressed by a professional who, who, who can deal with it. But I promise you, it's not the 77% of, of North Americans who claim to have this anxiety. The reality is it's that fear of public judgment, which is probably why your high school speech was 30 seconds long, because that is a, a social group of peers who are definitely there judging you. <laughs> so it's that fear of public judgment. So the first thing to remember is that the audience is on your side. Mm-hmm. You want to get over this fear of public speaking? Understand that nobody shows up to a presentation hoping that it sucks. They want you to succeed. If you start to fumble, maybe they start to get uncomfortable. They're like, but even you have you, you've been to a presentation where the presenter is bombing horribly. Have you not, James? Can you yeah, think of, of course, one? Of course, yeah. What is your hope that he continues the, to suck or that somehow this gets better? That they recover. God, please, please, please get better, right? Like we we are still on their side, yeah. even when they're bombing. We're like, come on, pull it out in the end. Come on, make this better. <laughs> right? Like we are on the audience's side. The second thing to remember, you are the authority. If you have been asked to present, if somebody has shown up to your talk, they came for a reason. We, again, the question that stumped you earlier, we serve ourselves first. We are self-serving organisms, primarily. I am not going to show up to something if there's some place better that I can be. And even, even, even you're like, no, 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 my boss makes me go to the quarterly sales meetings and I have to listen to the sales statistics because it's part of my job. Fine. But you're passively indifferent there, right? You still choose to show up because you could defy your boss. You could say, I'm sorry, I'm too busy or I have a client or whatever. You could make an excuse to not show up. When you show up, you're still, you're there because you have to be, but you still want it to be good because you don't want your time wasted. This better not be a waste of my time. I worked for the same company for 10 years and we had fire drills every single year. And for some reason, they always pre-announced them and I didn't do a single one of them. I went out for coffee. I was sick that day. There are ways to get around mandatory workplace things and don't, you're bullshitting if you think you you can't. Uh, Exactly. So I guess to kind of close out, there are undoubtedly some people in my audience who would like to make money as public speakers. Is there a, a quick crash course you can give in the next couple of minutes on how to find your, your first speaking gigs? Yes. And it's called Google. And nice. Google hates it when you say Google something. So I want you to do an internet search using <laughs> the, the engine yeah. of your choice. <laughs> We're libertarians. We use DuckDuckGo around here. No, I'm just kidding. But. So <laughs> I want you to do a DuckDuckGo search and you're going to type in the following uh, key fields. Uh, you're going to do call for presentation, call for speech, call for speaker, one of those keywords, and then the topic that you want to speak on. So whether that's public speaking, safety, podcasting, um, business development, business consulting, octopuses. I mean, you pick what, what topic of choice you want to be presenting on. And then where do you want to talk? You know, do you want to talk in Minnesota? Do you want to get out of Minnesota and you want to talk in back in Dallas or Houston? Or do you want to get to LA or Florida? Or better yet, let's go and visit France. You're going to put in all of those keywords. So call for presentation, call for speaker, call for talk, um, call for presentation, the topic that you want to discuss and where you want to do that talk and hit enter. And the instant you do that, you would be surprised what DuckDuckGo will provide to you. And in that uh, search and filter, that's when you start to discover where your opportunities are. 
whether they're paid or unpaid. And that's, and so when you start getting good, you can, you know, paid or unpaid as a key qualifier in that search engine. And the more you do this, the more iterations that you play with in what that language is, the more you'll find how your key demographic typically words their, their ask for a presentation and a presenter. All right. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the talk today, Tyler. And we didn't get into why you're Sean Tyler Foley some places and just Tyler Foley others. Is that information available on Google or is that a story you uh, you need to tell? Uh, both. Um, very quickly, it's because I was born Sean Tyler Foley, uh, but Sean Tyler is like Jean-Luc. It is one name. I am Sean oh. Tyler. So if you ask my mom who her son is, she would say, my son is Sean Tyler Foley. And, what she, and if you said, well, what's his first name? She would say, I just told you it's Sean Tyler. So I thank my mom for a world of confusion. If you were to ask my wife who she's married to, she would look at you really crazy and say, Tyler, of course. And the long and the short of it is I was born in 1979. The two most popular names in North America in 1979 were Sean and Tyler. I was blessed <laughs> with them both. Wow. But it also means that in my kindergarten class, which is, I think had 16 students in it, and as would a demographic uh, small sample size be, there were exactly um, eight boys and eight girls. And of the eight boys, five of them were Sean's. No way. And none of us spelled it the same. We had S-H-A-U-N, S-H-A-W-N, S-E-A-N, and one that was so Gaelic that I can't even pronounce it because it had way more consonants than syllables. (laughs) But I, nobody would call me Sean Tyler because it was confusing to a whole bunch of Mm five-year-olds. And there was one other Tyler in my class. So I became Tyler F., and that's just kind of stuck through school is that I was Tyler. So my friends call me Tyler. My family calls me Sean Tyler. And the government and people who don't know me call me Sean and I laugh at them. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tyler F. Why don't you plug away uh, any social networks or websites or anything you'd like people to visit you at? Well, the best place to go is SeanTylerFoley.com. And now that everybody knows that it's spelled S-E-A-N, the proper Irish way, S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R. F-O-L-E-Y.com, SeanTylerFoley.com. That is the best place to go. Um, anybody who would like to pick up the book, uh, particularly a libertarian audience, I would encourage them to go to uh, bookshop.org. Bookshop.org is uh, a wonderful website. It's in the States. So if your international audience is listening to this, they won't be able to pick it up using bookshop.org. So I would encourage Barnes & Noble or something other than Jeff Bezos' site. Uh, because Jeff Bezos just flew to space. He doesn't need more of your money. But if you are in the U.S. and you would like to pick up a copy of The Power to Speak Naked, bookshop.org will connect you with your local book retailer. So whether it's my book or any but any other reading material you want to pick up, bookshop.org is connecting you with your brick-and-mortar store that's down the street, run by mom and pop, who are probably struggling right now and could use your support. And one of the nice things about bookshop.org is they take a percentage of all of their sales and put it into a big funding pool that uh, your local mom and pop bookstore can apply to, to get funding to help keep them afloat. And for all of those reasons, I would encourage everybody to go to bookshop.org. And James, I would ask them before they do all of that, if they're getting value out of the Blackbird podcast and what you are providing as far as material goes before they do any of these things, before they surf to any other site, they're already on a platform. They're already listening to this. And if they've gotten this far, they've gotten far. So I want them to hit pause right now and give you a five-star review because you are doing a really good job of researching and asking probing questions and getting a good conversation going and serving your audience in a way that matters. So if they're getting value out of this, the least they can do is give you a five-star review for the effort that you're doing on the Blackbird podcast, especially because they're already on it right now. So before you surf over to SeanTylerFoley.com or bookshop.org, hit pause on your device, give this a five-star review, let James know how he's doing. Let me know how I'm doing. Rate this episode. You know, give us some feedback on how we did. And uh, that's all of my plugs that I need to get in for today, James. Awesome. Thank you so much. And especially for the little plug to my audience, I could use all the reviews I can get. Thank you so much.
All right. Thanks again to Tyler, or should I say Sean Tyler, for joining me today. And thanks to you, as always, for tuning in. You heard the guy at the end of the episode. Head over to iTunes. I left a link in the show notes and leave me a rating and review. Even if you don't listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, you can still click that link and leave a review. All you need is an Apple ID, which I think by this point, most people have. And if you don't, that's fine too. If your podcast app of choice does have ratings and reviews, I appreciate it there as well. If you haven't already, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com. Sign up with your email address to make sure that you get emails every time I release a piece of content, whether it is this audio podcast or written content, which I am always working on and very rarely finishing and publishing. But I promise I will get better about that. If you would like to get these interviews early, up to a month or three weeks early sometimes, throw me $7 a month or $70 a year and I'll send them to you. These early episodes only include the interviews. So these intros and outros don't get included, but what does get included in addition to the raw audio of the interview is our unedited like pre-show conversations. I don't know most of the people who I interview, so we always like to have a couple of minutes of just kind of getting to know you type conversation. So if that appeals to you, or if you just want to be generous because you derive benefit from the show, head to blackbirdpodcast.com and sign up for one of the paid options. However you subscribe to the show, though, I really appreciate it. And with that, this is another episode of Blackbird in the Can. I'll see you on the next one. And until then, live free. Music.